You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by Sally McGrain, who's a journalist who writes about the culture, business, politics, and science of Western Europe, Russia, and Ukraine for the New York Times, New Yorker, and several foreign publications. She's also the author of the novel Moscow at Midnight. So welcome, Sally, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. Oh, hi, Vince. Well, thanks for taking the time to interview me. <laughs> well, I, I went through your, your back history of articles, and you've written dozens of articles on all sorts of topics. Um, I mean, as I mentioned in the, in the intro, a lot of Russia, a lot of Ukraine, a lot of Western Europe. But what was the inspiration for a novel and really a spy novel to boot? What led you to decide one day I'm going to write something like this? Um, I mean, basically, I sort of discovered John le Carre when I was in my early 20s and living in San Francisco. And we moved into this really cool apartment in the Castro. And the, the landlord had left um, sort of bouquets of bird skeletons and his book collection. <laughs> um, and so I did ask him if, if he wouldn't mind maybe taking the, the bouquets of bird skeletons out of my bedroom. Um, but I was completely happy to keep the book collection. And he was a Lucari fan, um, and that's sort of how I started, you know, reading spy fiction. And, and I would say, I, I, you know, I really just love John Lucari, especially the Cold War stuff. And I, I, I've asked myself a lot, sort of, you know, what it is about that, because I'm not somebody who's really interested in sort of spy things in general. I mean, and I, I think that... I think that what he does there is he there's kind of this this undercurrent. Um, it's like a psychological portrait. Um, it's and it's it sort of shows. Um, yeah, I mean, like kind of how like in these banal sort of office space uh, settings, like how how sort of the these dramatic historical uh, changes take place. And, and I think that's something that um, I find pretty fascinating. You know, how how do um, like how 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 do big abstract things affect people on on small levels? Um, 
and you know how how do they manifest themselves? But also, I mean, it's just these are just great books. Um, and so I, when I started going to Russia, um, which I initially did with a, a friend, and we were she she uh, she had emigrated as a kid from Ukraine, and at some point in our twenties, I was a journalist, and she was an academic, and she spoke Russian, and we thought, okay, let's like just go and see what's happening there. Uh, and so we went on a, a trip, and I I did some reporting, and um, and I, I ended up making friends, and I, I kind of kept going back. And then at some point, I just thought, um, well, I should write something, and if it's Russia, it should be a spy novel. <laughs> well, I mean, I, by, I've read all the Le Carre, of course, and and by reading this. I, I, there's a clear line of demarcation in spy novels between those that have clearly emulated La Carre, which kind of take a slow burn, like you mentioned. It's a lot of things that aren't action-packed, that aren't necessarily as exciting as perhaps that other side where it's all shoot them up in special forces and everything else. Did you, did you consciously sit down and think, I want to write it this way? I want Because you don't get into any kind of the spy stuff other than the fact that where the guy works, where Max works or used to work, you don't get into any of spy stuff until a decent amount into the book. It really, there's a lot of setup, and I think it's important. I think it works very well, but it's not one that starts off with like a, a chase scene down a Moscow street. Oh, yeah. Well, um, I mean, I, I think that, you know, most of our lives don't involve chase, chase, chase scenes, and I, I guess it's probably the same for spies. I mean, I think, you know, most of our lives are kind of, you know, how am I going to get from point A to point B? Uh, where's the money coming from? Um, how's my colleague, you know, is he is he getting this promotion that I want? Um, you know, I think that our, our, our lives are sort of inevitably small. <laughs> and that's, I think, you know, I mean, I, 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 you know, I'm a journalist, obviously, so I've, I, I only know sort of my reality, but I've also talked to, I guess people from many walks of life, and I, I think that all of us, um, you know, I think it's just sort of the human condition. I mean, we're, we um, we we confront the things in front of us, right? And and once in a while, there's a chase, but it's it's actually you know not the bulk of our of our um, experience. Yeah, and if you're a spy and you're getting chased around, you've done something horribly wrong, and <laughs> things aren't going very well. Let me ask you. Uh, this is interesting to me. Is a lot of a lot of spy novels that we all certainly know in the West um, were written in the United States or Great Britain or other places, and then eventually would be translated into German or Italian or Russian. Your book was first published in German. Is there to you a noticeable difference in how different cultures or markets enjoy spy fiction? Like you know, now seeing this from the German angle, that many of us haven't had a chance to to look at this dynamic from. Uh, yeah, I mean, for example, the Germans, they, they call them crimmies, and um, they love, like, you know, police drama, detective drama. Like, I, I, I watch, um, I grew up with no TV, so I now watch a lot of it. Um, and uh, when I watch, you know, if you turn on German TV, uh, like, you know, basically like 90% of the shows are, are police dramas. So I think that there's, for whatever reason, it's a whole topic on its own. But, um, yeah, I think this is a, a format that really a, appeals there. Uh, I, I don't exactly know why, but it's it's definitely something um, that they are into. Um, 
And then I think the other thing is that, uh, you know, German, Germany and Russia are, you know, they're very geographically, historically uh, close to one another. And um, I think that Germans are very interested in, in Russia, and they're more interested in sort of, you know, minutiae um, or, or, like, details. You know, like, for them, Russia is not a kind of a big caricature uh, across the Atlantic, it's, it's their neighbor, you know, and they have um, very, you know, direct experience. I mean, these days with, you know, business dealings, um, you know, not so long ago with, you know, war, occupation, um, you know, and uh, stretching back over centuries. Um, and so I think that it, it was uh, something that, that sort of, it was, uh, yeah, I think, I think it, it, it worked well in the German market, I think. Let me, let me ask you a kind of a wonky decision-making question about a novelist. How much, when, when your book is taking place in modern day, and it certainly has things that a lot of people now are thinking about, whether it's spies in Russia and the United States, how do you decide how much to place of this in real life? How do you decide how much of today's world you insert your characters into, or do you just reimagine everything? Um, no, I mean, I think, um, I mean, I think like for me also, like writing this novel, um, or writing in general, like what I, what I find really interesting are sort of, um, like the real things, you know, like the things you can touch and see and feel and, and, you know, real people's, because I, I think, you know, whenever you're not dealing with sort of abstract ideas, but like, you know, actual people, actual experiences, um, it's it's always fascinating and, and way more fascinating than anything you could come up with. Um, and I think like in Russia, um, you know, there's not, there's still not so many, you know, Americans running around. And I, I think, um, you know, maybe that contributes a little bit. Like, I, think, I feel like... I've heard a lot of really interesting stories, and um, yeah, I mean, and people, yeah, they just have interesting stories and interesting circumstances, and um, that's what really fascinates me, and uh, so that's what I put in. Well, let me ask you about, you talked about there's not a lot of Americans running around in Moscow. I've spent some time there, but uh-huh. but if I, if I had to kind of close my eyes and, and write what I saw, I'd have a hard time doing that. It's not like if you told me that I'm from Miami, I live in Washington. If you told me to close my eyes and describe Miami or Washington, I could do it pretty well. How much, how much did you have to, because you actually talk a lot about Moscow geography in here, about streets, about areas, about neighborhoods. How much was that was on the ground research or was it just kind of throwing your recollections from being there multiple times? Oh, um, I mean, it's hard to distinguish research from life. You know? Right. Um, I mean, I, I spent um, quite a lot of time there. My, my sister was living there for three years as a as a lawyer, and so I, and I, I live in Berlin, so it's it's really not far. And I, particularly in that time, I I spent you know months and months in Moscow, and um, I think it just kind of comes naturally. You know, you think, okay, I'm, here's a scene, and this is where it took place, and uh, you know, I think, and also, I, I mean, I was also, I was 
I was also working. And, um, you know, whenever you're doing any journalism story anywhere, there's always, like, I mean, you know, you always, there's, like, a hundred percent of the things that you want to put in there you can't put in, or not a hundred, but, like, you know, there's always huge amounts of interesting details that um, just don't fit or aren't quite, you know, are, are fascinating but don't belong to that particular story. And, um, you know, after a while, I think this is a common experience for journalists, um, kind of adds up and you want to you want to do something with it. Right. Oh, I, I get that. You don't want to have the work wasted. <laughs> uh, what? Oh, yeah, I mean, or, or, or it's just, I felt like also with um, particularly my, my reporting in, in Russia, like, uh, there's just all these interesting details that, that don't really have a home in journalism. Or that would be, like, for example, when I I went to the um, time machine, I, I really went to Novosibirsk in Siberia and visited a, a time machine that had been built by Soviet scientists with Soviet funding, and... Um, like it's totally cool. It's it's not necessarily a journalism story because there's nothing. There's no hook. You know, it's nothing new. Um, but I love. I mean, I love it. You know. Right. <laughs> like, um, and and I feel like something like that also as a kind of straight journalism story. You know, how do you approach that? You know, I think. Um, you know, it's 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 kind of a story that uh, I think is better approached by art. <laughs> No, that makes sense. So let me ask you about that juxtaposition. How much research goes into this? Because you do have, you do have stuff in the book about intelligence operations, about tradecraft. You have things about privatization of intelligence. That's kind of the, kind of the real framework of the book itself. And this is in the news, of course, but I'm wondering if it's something you researched. And then I like this because I'm, I'm a nuclear historian. You talk about an agency no one really talks about, and that's the NNSA and loose nuclear weapons, an unrepresented intelligence agency. So when you sat down to write this, did you hunker down and say, I'm going to do some research, or is this just things you picked up along the way that you wanted to include in the book? Um, it was a little bit of both. Um, so what I actually, like when I initially decided I'm going to sit down and write this, um, I was in Moscow for a month, and I had been working on like a sort of a love story novella for 10 years, rewriting the first sentence. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to go. I'm going to stay with my sister. I'm going to write something from beginning to end. And it doesn't matter if it's good or bad. I just have to finish it. So I had an assignment from um, the Canadian Airlines in-flight magazine to do a piece on Moscow's hottest restaurants. <laughs> and I had an expense uh, you know, budget of $250, which in 2008 Moscow was <laughs> kind of like... You know, well, I'll tell you how much it was. So, um, so I took my sister, who was working for the um, NRDC, and her colleague out for. They each had. I told them they could each have one vodka shot, and the three of us split a like a, a silver dollar size pancake with caviar. And then my entire expense account was blown. <laughs> and I told them that, um, you know, in exchange they had to come up with a plot. Um, and so that's how the that's how the nuclear waste and diamonds came, came up. <laughs> and then I thought, okay, so great, I've got you know I've got my my topic. And then um, and then in that time, I, I I think I mostly I mostly this, so that ended up being kind of the first draft of the novel, what I wrote in that month. And I I definitely talked to them, um, you know, 
they both had some some knowledge about this. Um, but later, but and, and then I just started writing down sort of you know the things that happen every day and the stories I had heard in the past. Um, and then I, I really started rewriting it uh, maybe seven years later. And then I sat down. I I, I called. Um, a couple of nuclear scientists. I had a friend who was working at a, an American friend who was working uh, at a nuclear uh, energy journal in, in the UK, and he gave me some contacts. Um, and so then I, you know, I really, uh, I, I mean, the whole plot, like the plot details changed. I mean, I, I right. sort of had my framework, but I, um, I rewrote a lot. Um, and then, and then in the meantime, like I, I had also been to Russia a lot more, and I had more stories. Um, so, yeah, but I think, you know, that I think like those, a lot of those, I don't know, those sort of, uh, haptic details, um, it's always good to be there, you know, because, because the, the way it feels, uh, in that moment to, you know, be on the metro or, you know, see something that strikes you, I think, um, that's something that's kind of important to catch more or less, uh, at the time, um, you know, and then the other stuff you can kind of fiddle with or change, or, right? Um, you know, update. Um, so yeah, I would say for the for the the ultimate, uh, you know, novel. I guess I, I did quite a bit of research. I mean, it's it's a different kind of research than for journalism um, because it's more um, in journalism. It's like, is this correct? Absolutely. When you look at it from every angle possible, and with fiction, it was sort of like. Could this be? Right. Um, which was also kind of a, a, a nice and interesting change. Well, you are allowed your dramatic license, right? I mean, you can kind of, because everyone knows it's a novel, you can kind of do what you want with it more than you would otherwise. Yeah, I mean, reality is sort of a, a jumping off point rather than an end goal. Although right. I think that in the end, you you have many of the same goals. I mean, you want something that um, kind of feels real. Right. But maybe maybe the terms of that reality are a bit different. Like, it, it for example, like, I think the, the time travel idea, I mean, if you're kind of a cut-and-dried, straight-up journalist, it's, it's hard to take that idea seriously. But I think as a human being, it's, I, you know, I think human human... Um, you know, I think we all sort of have these moments where you think, oh, what if, or, you know, time kind of becomes a bit weird. We have these, like, emotional, um, you know, whatever, if you're really happy, it goes fast, and if you're really sad, it goes slowly. Um, and, like, that's part of our our, our reality, you know, as, as people, um, even if it's not sort of, you know, scientific. Right, right. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. 
With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. Let me let me let me pull out of the book for a second and let me ask you a little bit about something that I think a lot of Americans can't do, and that's separating the Russian people from the Russian government. Because you, you've you've written a lot of things about Russia, um, you seem to have a lot of love for the people. I mean, I'm thinking of some of the stories that I've read that you've written about everything from elevator rescue teams to metro dogs and museum cats, and some of the youth in Russia and where to go in Saint Petersburg, and a lot of things that are about kind of celebrating Russian culture and like Russian life. How hard is it, especially being in Berlin, right, where you kind of have Russia right there menacing as a neighbor? How hard is it to separate that, separate the Russian government from the Russian people? I, I think this is sort of a, um, I mean, I think, I, I feel like it happens just sort of naturally, or it's definitely not, not a goal that I have. I think that um, if you just go to a place, any place, and you talk to people, you know, you have sort of a completely different um, you know, impression than when you're reading, like reading ab- about it from a distance or thinking about it from a distance. Um, I mean, I, I didn't definitely didn't set out to like celebrate Russian people, but just being there, um, you know, I, for example, uh, I my sister and I got stuck in an elevator, <laughs> and then, um, and these these guys came and got us out within like 20 minutes, and then. Another friend said we had, we were a little late to to go meet some people for drinks, and um, one of the one of her friends said, "Oh, you know, there's there's these uh, rescue teams," and I just thought, "Oh, that's a that's a great story," um, and also because it, it you know it's just such a different approach to life. It's more you know it's just like you know in 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 sort of the <laughs> in the West, you know, you think, "Oh, you you can't let anything break." And it's just sort of like, well, no, things break, and then you have to deal with it, which I think is also a pretty, pretty valid um, approach to life. Um, and so, you know, so then we just, I just went, and I, I met, uh, you know, I, I met the people doing this, and and that was sort of what happened. And um, you know, so it wasn't like, oh, you know, it's so amazing how <laughs> you know Russians deal with elevator failure. It was more like, oh, this is an interesting story. It's a different way of approaching things. Um, you know, let's let's see what happens. Let's, let's, but, and I, yeah, and I think I think you know that's that's uh, that's sort of the case whenever you do any reporting anywhere. Um, you know, you, you have an idea of you know there's there's a there's an impulse like a story, and then you just have to see you have to see what happens. And um, you know, and each place you know has its own flavor. Um, you know, and each culture has its own sort of idiosyncrasies, and um, and that's what I really love, you know, is it's how, how how are we all a little bit different from each other? Well, let me, let me ask, how long have you been in Berlin? 14 years. Okay, so 14 years ago, most Westerners were 
looking at Russia with somewhat rose-colored glasses. We, we thought they still could be worked with, and they weren't necessarily as uh, expansionist as it appears they are. Have you noticed a marked change in the view of Russia, of the average person in Germany? Well, I mean, I would say that um, I think even today, I, I don't think Americans look at Russia too much. I mean, I think in the Cold War, there was, you know, they were kind of this big generic boogeyman, and I think ever since then, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of, I, I don't think most people spend too much time thinking about it. And of course, like now, uh, you know, they're, they're again kind of a, a boogeyman I don't think really with the same power as during the... I mean, I don't think the image has the same power as it did during the Cold War. Um, but, yeah, I, I mean, I just... I don't know. I, mean, I, mean, I also don't live in the U.S., so maybe my inter, like my, my uh, impression is skewed. Um, and I think that, that Germans, you know, have been um, much more attuned to their large neighbor, you know, the, the entire time. I mean, I think, you know, the kind of the, the memory of Russian occupation is, I think, very visceral in Germany, I think, even today. Like, there's, there's you know, this is something that is not, it's not a cartoon boogeyman. It's something like, oh, you know, my grandmother, you know, these Russians came. You know, I mean, there's, there's kind of a, there's something personal and visceral and, I think kind of frightening, but but also um, I think the Germans are also sort of they just know more about Russian or, or maybe not Russian individuals, but they they know more about Russia. You know, they know what kinds of trade happens between the two countries. Um, they're more attuned to their politics. I mean, obviously, uh, until 1989, <laughs> you know, Soviet politics were to some degree German politics. Um, so I, I would say, I would say, I, I don't think that things have changed radically. Maybe just sort of headlines have, but right. I yeah, I don't, I don't know that attention has really shifted that much. It would be my opinion. Well, what about Germany itself as a European leader? Because there's been an emergence of, of Germany as kind of the leadership inside Europe in the last 10, 15 years. Yeah. And, and certainly... Whether it has anything to do with American politics or not, you've kind of seen that both economically, but also as a military, you know, power, military national security power. Has that been notable? Is that something where the German people begin to kind of realize that they've risen now to kind of the most powerful both economy and nation inside of Europe? Yeah, I think that there's definitely uh, an awareness of that. And I, I would say that um, I think that the, the major shift has, I mean, they've been the most important economy, I mean, for, you know, many decades. Um, I mean, probably since the 50s. But, um, I think maybe the shift is, is not so much that they are more important as an economy. It's rather that they um, are, in a way, owning that more. Um, I think that you know, after the World Cup was held in Germany, there kind of, you know, also that kind of coincided with a certain generational change um, and that the, like, some of the kind of, to some degree, some of the taboos about saying, okay, we are German, we are 
powerful have, I would say, at least shifted. Um, and so there's kind of more of a willingness to say, um, you know, we're, I, I mean, we're important is a little bit facile, but to kind of say, okay, this is the situation. Um, and I think at the same time, um, it's happening in a way that is not sort of a, you know, neo-Nazi sort of. Well, that's the trick, right? It, yeah, that the trick is to be nationalist or, or to be patriotic without being a uber nationalist. I think even patriotic goes too far um, for you know in Germany. Um, I mean, I think as soon as you say you're patriotic in Germany, it's smacks of um, being a neo-Nazi. Um, but I think it's just maybe not being quite so um, reticent about the role that they are actually playing in Europe. Um, and I, I think that what's really interesting for me is um, that they're also sort of, especially with, with Trump, um, sort of stepping up and saying, okay, you know what, um, we actually need to be the ones guarding these democratic ideals um, because, you know, the U.S., which we had kind of looked to, to to be doing that, is not doing it, and uh, you know we have some of the strongest, uh, you know, democratic sort of um, impulses, <laughs> and um, and I think that's that's quite interesting, and and I think that Germany has really, you know, you really can see. I mean, of course, it's not perfect, and there are problems, um, but you can see that they've done a lot of work uh, to address the past and to say we don't want that to happen again and created a society that's more liberal and um, kind of more careful about not wanting certain segments of the population to be so desperate that, you know, fascism could take a cold. Um, and, I, and I think, like, that is kind of helping... Um, yeah, helping with the sort of guarding of democratic ideals and also sort of allowing them to say, okay, this is this is the role we want to play. You wrote a really interesting article in July about writers fleeing Syria and finding a place in Berlin to kind of learn a little bit about publishing in Germany. One, well, of, the yeah. thing, one of the perceptions that a lot of people have here in the United States of not just Germany but also of certain of the Scandinavian states and others is that multiculturalism or like the push for refugee placement and, and kind of the, the almost over liberal ideals of kind of not being uh, against any kind of, of refugee uh, kind of placement. Uh, it's causing a lot of tensions. Uh, and of course we're not on the ground watching this and it's very easy for certain media outlets, whether right or left to kind of play up, you know, a story here and a story there about neo-Nazis marching past Jewish bookstores, which you wrote a great piece about also. I'm wondering about multiculturalism, about the mass broad spectrum of Germans, and are they embracing it? Are, do they realize kind of, because it, it hasn't really been a multicultural society before recently, uh, you know, are they embracing the melting pot concept? Um, that's, that's in a way a hard hard question, because, um, of course, um, you know, I think it probably varies a lot in urban centers, but at the same time, in urban centers, um, there's some wild statistics, um, well, wild, I mean, that something like, 
I don't have it on my fingertips, but like, I don't know, only, I don't know, two in three kindergarten children in, in urban centers um, have parents who are not German or like, you know, not ethnically German. Um, so it's, multiculturalism is coming, you know, whether, or it's, it's coming and kind of arriving. Um, and I, I, I think that um, change is, you know, always difficult. And obviously I think, uh, you know, the one big change has been sort of the, the, the ASD, uh, which is this new sort of um, far-right uh, party uh, that's, that's, you know, got about 15% of the vote. And, and that's something that I, I think would have been relatively unthinkable 14 years ago. Um, you know, before there was this, the NPD, that was the far-right party, and, and the NPD was basically synonymous with neo-Nazism. Um, and, and, and saying that you were part of that, you know, really meant that you were not part of mainstream society. And what's really changed in the last couple of years, and probably uh, truly because of the, the, the refugee crisis, um, is that there is this kind of acceptance um, for very right-wing ideas um, that, that has entered the mainstream. And people are, you know, saying things that never would have been acceptable just a few years ago. Um, Again, um, they wouldn't have been acceptable because of Germany's history, you know, and, and, and there is a very high level of sensitivity to comments that, uh, you know, elsewhere you might not make that much of. But because of this, you know, awareness of what a racist comment can lead to um, or, you know, a, a hate, hateful, you know, comments that they can actually lead to genocide, Um you know, there is just a high degree of sensitivity. Um, wait, wait, I think I've lost the thread. Is there? Let me ask one last question about Germany. I just, I'm fascinated because you spent so much time there. It's interesting to ask these questions. What is Germany's view about the EU and, and being part of NATO? About kind of this broader European community, and I'm thinking it from the kind of the defense side. Obviously, we're we're a podcast that focuses on national security and intelligence, but. Does, does Germany, is there a sense on the ground that Germany sees itself as part of a broader Western European defense community? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think Germany um, uh, sees itself as, you know, kind of a team player, like, you know, part of the Western world and, uh, you know, they want to keep things, keep things safe and calm. Well, I mean, that's like maybe a very uh, pedestrian interpretation, but I, 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 that's the feeling that I get. I don't. Well, I mean, that's I mean, that's the, that's why I'm asking because you you have the on the ground feelings. I mean, it's it's one thing to read about it; it's another thing to kind of live it like you are. So, appreciate that. Let me one last thing. I should be off this. I, I lied. One more question about Germany. How much of a we we just had the anniversary, and actually, it was um, a couple days ago the anniversary of the fall of the wall. Um, was that something, is that something every year that's kind of, I mean, you, you talk about the remembrance of the Nazi past, but is there the yeah. remembrance of the East, especially in Berlin, right? Berlin is this city that was surrounded by this wall, at least the Eastern part of it. Is there a yearly remembrance of this that, be, or has it somewhat faded away a little bit over the last two decades? Well, I think to many degrees it's faded away, but at the same time, like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, 
in my early 40s. And um, so my I have friends who are East German and West German. And, and you know, my, my friends basically sort of were teenagers when, when this happened. And, you know, everybody notices. I mean, it was part of everybody's life, East and West. I, I think, And I think even for younger people, it's, it's not completely irrelevant. Um, so, like, this, this year, I, I, like, we were at a bar that night, and somebody said, oh, you know, this is uh, the fall of the wall. And everybody, you know, toasted and uh, said, you know, and then people, you know, just talked about it a little bit. Like, I think at one of the big... Um, anniversaries, maybe it was 20 years, one of my friends, we, there was a little party, everybody got together, and one of my friends, but some of my friends who had grown up in the West sort of, sort of you know, made some little bit, sort of a funny comment, and then another friend said, well, you know, I I really know what it meant, you know, like, I, I, I'll never, like, my life would have been completely different if the wall hadn't fallen. fallen. So I, I think it's something that um, it goes very deep. I mean, it, it was a completely different life. So let me let me wrap up by asking you the question: What's next? Are you just are you going to keep writing articles? Or are you going to write another novel? I mean, you left this book off where there could potentially be a sequel. Or are you thinking um, about? I've got, I've got a sequel. Okay. Um, I went to uh, I went to Odessa. Well, actually, I've spent I've gone to Odessa several times. Um, and I wrote part of Moscow at midnight in Odessa because I I needed to kind of get away. I wanted to have like a kind of a Russian flair, but in a place that was hot and uh, not too expensive. So I, I wrote part of it there. Um, and when I was there, I started the second one. So in Odessa at dawn, uh, Max goes to Odessa, and he's he's got to solve a... Well, he has to solve. Well, he doesn't have to solve a mystery, but he does. Um, and the the mystery is that uh, there's a very famous politician has become the governor of Odessa, and he has a really distinctive uh, birthmark on the back of his hand, and it, it's a kind of a wine red uh, mark shaped like the state of Florida, <laughs> and. Uh, that guy, that hand shows up in a vat of sunflower oil that's exported to Baltimore. But the governor has both his hands. So what, what's going on? Okay. And, and when, when is that coming out in the United States? Uh, well, I'm, I'm looking for a publisher. So. Okay. <laughs> so we'll be on the lookout for that, and we'll have you come back uh, when, when that <laughs> okay, comes great, out yeah. first. Because, I, I mean, it's also was another place. I mean, Russia is sort of, I, I think, generally undercovered, but... Um, Ukraine is even more so, and, and like Odessa, it's just it's a completely wild place, and and like the the real life stories are so surreal that like you as a novelist, all you have to do is just write them down. Yes, well, that's always helpful when all the information's right there for you, so it makes totally. life a lot easier. <laughs> So Sally McGrain is author of the novel Moscow at Midnight. It's uh, a wonderful Le Carre esque spy novel takes a nice deep slow burn uh you're not going to get any kind of super fast car chases in the first chapter if you want to actually work your way into a novel this is the one to pick up sally thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here at spycast we really appreciate it okay thanks a lot vince the international spy museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution to help support future educational programming please visit spymuseum.org and click on our donate now link at the top of the page